1: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. Thanks for coming on.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Of course. So, Andrew, the big question,
1: why are you running for president?
2: Well, I'm running for president because I spent the last seven years working in the Midwest and the South. And I believe that the driving force behind Donald Trump's victory in 2016 was that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states that Donald Trump needed to win and did win. And now my friends in Silicon Valley know that we're going to do the same thing to millions of retail workers, call center workers, fast food workers, truckers, and on and on through the economy. And for whatever reason, no one uh, in our political system wanted to face this wave And what it means. Uh, And so I decided to run for president to let people here know that it's not immigrants that have been causing economic problems. It's the fact that technology has pushed our economy to a point where people's paths forward are becoming harder and harder to find. And
1: what is your vision for a better economy? What solutions do you have to this problem?
2: Well, the, the big thing we have to do is we have to stop taking for granted the market's valuation of us as human beings, where my flagship policy is a universal basic income of $1,000 starting at age 18, $12,000 a year. And this would be particularly relevant to young people who I know listen to this podcast is that we have left you such a shambles of an economy and a planet and a path forward. And if you did decide to attend college, we made college ridiculously expensive, immorally so, such that you graduate with tens of thousands of debt. And then the jobs that you were promised may or may not even be there. 44% of recent college graduates are underemployed. Or doing a job that doesn't require a college degree. So we've lied to you and left you with a bill of goods. And my plan is to have an economy that actually works for people, young people in particular, where you start getting a thousand dollars a month. I mean, that'd be a huge difference maker. You could actually pay down your loans. You could make real plans. Uh, you could, uh, move and take a chance on something. Uh, because we need young people to be able to build businesses, start families, buy homes and move the economy forward instead of just paying off this phantom debt load.
1: And I think UBI, universal basic income, is a pretty new idea to a lot of folks. How are you planning on normalizing this idea when you seem to be the only Democratic candidate so far really pushing it?
2: Well, I'm happy to say that Marianne Williamson, who's another candidate for president, uh, just endorsed universal basic income. And more and more Democratic candidates are going to catch on because. It's the only real solution that would actually elevate uh, our young people, working class American, middle class. I mean, like the, the other proposals that are being presented, frankly, just nibble at the margins of the problems. If I make public university less expensive, that's a very, very excellent thing. But what does that mean to the 25-year-old who already graduated? Uh, you know, it's like if I... Uh, we, we have to reimagine this economy entirely. And I will say that this vision of a human-centered economy, of a triple-up economy, will become mainstream very, very quickly, just the way Bernie Sanders' uh, Medicare for All vision became mainstream after 2016.
1: And speaking of Bernie Sanders, he is the prominent democratic socialist in the race. Recently, democratic socialism has picked up a lot of steam. Currently, millennials and Democrats slightly prefer socialism to capitalism. What do you think about the rise of democratic socialism and what it says about our current economic environment, especially among millennials?
2: I think millennials are very smart, very wise. They're looking around. They're seeing an economy that does not make any sense for them. Uh, and they've seen and lived through the excesses of capitalism, you know, millennials remember the financial crash and what that did to their families and communities. So, the fact that millennials like socialism and democratic socialism means that they're waking up. You all are waking up to this disaster zone of an economy that we have left you. Uh, and so, I'm very glad that millennials uh, are embracing different economic visions uh, because this one does not work for you. And, you know, that, that's objectively true. So, I, I love it.
1: And obviously, democratic socialism is both economic and political. What is your vision for a democratic political system?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I'm aligned on just about every progressive dimension. Um, and so, like the the democratic socialist vision of having a society that actually cares about people's health and, you know, people aren't going bankrupt uh, to like get adequate health care, that people will have uh, their... That humanity respected, regardless of, uh, you know, like who they are and what their, their background is. I mean, I endorse all of that wholeheartedly. Um, so I, you know, and, and the fact that we're having this vital of a conversation, uh, makes me very happy. And, and, you know, I, I do think we have Bernie to thank for a lot of it.
1: Now, I'd really like to dig into UBI. There are a lot of critiques of UBI and I'd love to give you a chance to respond to them. There are a lot of folks who are saying that UBI is just going to cause inflation and raise the price of everything and therefore, negate any real benefits. What is your response to that?
2: I studied economics and that is wrong. Uh, And if we put money into your hands, you know what would happen? It would be just like today, except you'd have some more money. It's not like tomorrow where landlord is going to jack up your rent $999. That makes no sense. And if they did do that, you would say, hey, this is ridiculous. Well, first, they can't do that because, you know, we have leases. <laughs> A lot of leases actually have rates of increase. They did. Um, but part of this, Jordan, in my opinion, is that many young people have just gotten beaten uh, so down on the fact that this economy is brutal and inhuman and punishing, which it is, that if someone says something like, Hey, I'm going to reshape the economy by putting $1,000 into your hands, that the impulse is to say, Oh, that can't work either. It would work. It would not disappear. It would not hurt you. I am personally giving $1,000 a month to a family in New Hampshire right now. And you know what they're experiencing? life's a little bit better. And that is exactly what would happen to everyone who receives the Freedom Dividend under President Yang in 2021. And again, I have an economics degree. It's not going to get inflated away. That's just not the way the economy works.
1: Could you go into a little more detail about your experiment right now with the Freedom Dividend?
2: Yes. So, I am personally giving a family, the Fosse family, $1,000 a month in New Hampshire. We had different people reach out from New Hampshire, and the Fosse family seemed like a great fit, um, in part because they have such an American story, where the uh, it's two parents and a daughter who's a millennial, actually, uh, probably listens to this podcast because she's very democratically active, um, and she is a junior in college, and college is very, very expensive. And so, the family is struggling to ha- pay for the, their daughter's tuition. Uh, the father lost his job last year and so was without income for a while. He's found a new job that pays a bit less. Um, the, the mother is a cleaning um, person, has her own small business, just cleaning other people's houses. Um, and so, uh, I've been giving them a $1,000 a month since January 1 of this year. They have not spent it. They're figuring out what to do with it. And I think that's great. Uh, and... Uh the the but they said already it's a massive stress relief just knowing that they have this thousand dollars a month for the year, much of it is probably gonna to go to Janelle's tuition. Um which I'm going to suggest would happen to a lot of people listening to this right now is if I become president and I give you a thousand dollars a month, um a lot of it's probably gonna to go to your education loans. Uh and I have a separate plan to try and reduce student loan debt because it is up to one point five trillion. Most of it was immorally generated they lied to you. They said it's your fault. It's actually not your fault. It's the institution's fault. for becoming so bloated and expensive. And the only people that won were the college administrators uh, who got to enjoy higher salaries than they should have. And there are probably more than, than there should be. Um, so, there's a separate plan to get college debt off their backs. But I think this experience with the Fossey family in New Hampshire is very telling and indicative even though it's just one family. I'm going to do the same thing for a family in Iowa. Um, And I hope to get enough resources together to do it for everyone. I mean, that's the point of this campaign.
1: And what exactly is your plan to address student debt?
2: So, um, I think we should forgive a a significant proportion of student loan debt because it would be an economic stimulus. Like, if you were paying less to your debts, then you would spend more in the economy. You'd be more likely to go out, buy a home, start a family, and do things that we need you to do instead of holding up with your parents, paying off debt. And I know this. I had $100,000 in... School loans myself, and so I know it, it constrains your choices. So I would try and forgive a significant portion of that debt. And the specific plan that I've aired is that uh, we have something called a ten by ten, which is if you commit ten percent of your wages for ten years, then you are debt free at the end of it. So everyone has a path of repayment, and that means if you don't even make any money in a year, then it's zero, um, because uh, you know you, you again you got this degree on based oftentimes on false promises. From institutions and people, in the generations ahead of you.
1: And as I'm sure you've seen, there was a there was a study released by researchers at the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College, arguing that we should cancel all student debt entirely. That it would improve the health and well being of graduates. What are your thoughts on this proposal?
2: I think that proposal is going in the 100% correct direction. It would be a tremendous stimulus. And anyone who thinks that forgiving giving $1.5 trillion in student loan debt is impossible, we did the exact same thing for the banks during the bailout. We gave them $4 trillion, which is more than twice all the student loan debt, debt that exists right now. So I love that proposal. And if we did that, it would be tremendous for our entire country.
1: And what do you think about tuition-free public
2: college? I love the spirit and idea of tuition-free public college. I think if people can get educated without having life-changing debt, that's an enormous win. Um, my parents attended public universities, so, uh, I have, you know, I understand their potential and value. The only reason I'm not wholeheartedly, um, uh, 100% with, like, hey, we should be, um, uh, having public universities or a community college should be free. Uh, but having public universities be free is that, I think that it sends a message that's somewhat misleading, which is that one, that we want everyone to to go to college. Um, Only 32% of Americans go to college, and that percentage is roughly constant over the last number of years. It's not like there's like a whole nether 30% that's going to go to college. Um, And so saying that this is the answer suggests that um, we're essentially going to be concentrating and subsidizing the top third of the population by education. Um, and then the second part is that if you do graduate from college, again, there's a 44% chance that you're underemployed. Now, being underemployed without debt is much, much better than being underemployed like with debt, but it, it, we're not really solving the structural problem um, just by trying to to make that stuff free. So, we have to stop pretending that college is the end-all be-all um, and we have to try and create more alternative paths for young people. now. Uh, keep in mind, my flagship proposal is that everyone gets $1,000 a month starting at age 18. So if you do attend college, it's going to be partially paid for throughout.
1: And what you're saying, I think, speaks to the increasing problem of unemployment and underemployment among people without college degrees. It's becoming increasingly difficult to get a good paying job without a college degree. What, what are you hoping to do to change that?
2: Well, the big opportunity, Jordan, is that our country has oversold college and then stigmatized and marginalized vocational, technical, and apprenticeship training. Only 6% of American high school students are in a technical or vocational program. In Germany, that percentage is 59%. And there are many, many of these jobs that are going to be with us for years, decades to come that are really good, solid, um, enjoyable jobs and careers. So, we should be trying to create much more of a visible path and not stigmatize it for people who want to go into trades. If people don't want to go to college at all, want to start a small business, that should be something that we also support because it used to be that people were starting businesses all over this country um, and a lot of people didn't feel like they had to go to college to do so. Uh, we've gotten away from that. Now business formation is at record lows for young people in particular. Um, but that's something that we should be supporting, uh, as a path forward. Because for a lot of people, they just don't really want to go to college. I mean, you know, and again, only 32% graduate. The six-year completion rate for someone who starts college is only 59%. So you have four out of ten people who start college and don't graduate within six years. Many of them never graduate. Um, so we have to stop, like, beating everyone over the head with college, um, because college is not for everyone.
1: And I think this is very relevant to a big criticism folks have of UBI that it doesn't do anything to create jobs. What do you say to this critique?
2: Well, I think you have to think about what happens to that money. So let's say that you're in a town in Ma- Western Massachusetts. Um, so let's say you have a town of 100,000 people, pretty big town, I and mean, that's a big town. And then I become president, and every adult in that town gets $1,000 a year. So let's say, in, in rough numbers, That's like another $100 million in consumer buying power in that city per month. So then you start making reasonable projections and say, okay, how much of that money is going to get spent locally? You'd say, well, a significant proportion of it. It's going to get spent on tutoring services and food for your kids, car repairs you've been putting off, the occasional night out, hardware stores, pets and pet supplies. And how much of that money is going to then go into the main street businesses right there in that uh in that community are the tutoring services going to have to hire an extra person is the garage going to have to hire another mechanic is the restaurant going to have to hire two more servers so the big misconception with uh, this particular critique is that you're failing to take into account the circulation of money and all the second order economic benefits if i give everyone in that town a thousand dollars a month it's going to get spent And if it gets spent, then you end up creating approximately 2 million jobs minimum around the country, according to the Roosevelt Institute. And you grow the consumer economy between 8 and 10%. So, all you have to do is think about any business you're in. It's like, hey, would a microbrewery be better? Um, Would it have more customers if everyone had an extra $12,000 a year? I have a feeling more beer is going to get bought (laughs) in in, in that economy, like you pretty much can't find a business that's not going to benefit and then would that microbrewery then maybe have to hire a few more brewers, a few more marketing people, a few more salespeople. This is the surest way that we can create jobs in our economy is by putting economic buying power into our hands, we're the owners of this country, it's ours. And so, if we have this dividend, it's going to create millions of jobs around the country. It's also going to create hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs, artisans, artists, writers, creators and for everyone listening to this who's passionate about female empowerment and I am very passionate about female empowerment. My wife is at home with our two boys right now, one of whom is autistic and to me, it's a disgrace that that work gets devalued the way it does. But there are millions of American women at every age that are stuck in exploitative or abusive situations, jobs, or relationships that they have a hard time transitioning out of because they don't have the economic ability to do so. So, if you put $1,000 a month into every woman's hands, that is going to make it much, much easier for them to actually be able to improve their situations across the board. Like, when we talk about empowering people, we have to start putting money to work. We have to stop like, you know, like, like nibbling around the edges of the problems. The problem oftentimes is that people don't have the resources and we can change that. It's actually the easiest thing for us to change as a society.
1: And what would this artistic and cultural freedom mean for our
2: society? How would it improve the lives of the American people? Well, if you look at the impact artists have on a community, it's actually identical to entrepreneurs where if a bunch of artists move into a place, it's going to become hip <laughs> and trendy pretty quickly. And then the property value is going to go up and then everyone's going to want to be there. Um, but but more than that, it's about like the soul of our country where right now you can see it. Like uh, even for you, and I'm just going to make some projections, Jordan, but you know, you have this podcast, a lot of people listen to it, a lot of people enjoy it. And then, you know, your, your revenue is then linked to how many people download it, and like, you know, advertising revenues based upon like how, how many people listen to it and share it around and everything else. And so we have artistic creativity that right now is very much hand in hand uh, with what the marketplace will reward. Um, and so if you have people getting money that's completely independent of the marketplace, you're going to have a very, very different set of creatives. I, I would suggest that there would be much more art being produced by marginalized people because right now they lack the economic freedom to be able to, to make art.
1: And could you speak more to how this would benefit marginalized people, people of color, LGBTQ folks,
2: disabled people? Sure. I mean, I was talking to, um, one of my staffers who's in the LGBTQ community, and he told me we are more likely to get kicked out of the house, we're more likely to get fired from a job, we're more likely to be economically marginalized, and having a thousand dollars a month would be a game changer for people in our community. Um, people of color, African American friends of mine, they know that a thousand dollars a month would go much further in communities where they have systemically lower access to education and resources and opportunities. So the the beauty about universal basic income is it helps redress some of the worst inequities in our society and does it in a very, very powerful way.
1: And looking at a few other critiques of UBI, some claim that it would give cover to companies who don't want to pay their employees a living wage. Right now, we're seeing a big push among progressives for a $15 minimum wage. But unfortunately, studies have shown that it's inaccurate to call that a living wage in the vast majority of states. What is your perspective on the minimum wage and how to ensure that wages
2: are good and truly living wages? Well, the most powerful way to do it is to have a universal basic income where everyone's getting $12,000 a year. Truly, because then it doesn't come out of the employer uh, and it improves your bargaining power. Like if, if you were getting $1,000 a month and then some employer tried to stick it to you by paying you like eight bucks an hour, you'd be like, no, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to pass on this because like, I think I deserve better than that. Um, uh, and, and so, I couldn't agree with you more that it's messed up in this country that people can work full time and not be able to make ends meet. Um, and so, I'm I'm for the spirit of a higher... Living wage, and the best way we can accomplish that is just by putting a thousand bucks into people's hands um in part because if you think about it, even if I raise the working working pay to let's call it twenty bucks an hour, does that help the the stay the stay at home mom um, no, does that help uh the artist no, you know so the thousand dollars actually functionally increases everyone's wages. And it accounts for people who are not currently in the marketplace doing work that we know is very, very important. Like if I quit my job tomorrow and care for my ailing father, um, who's fine, so I don't need to do this. But if I did that, you know, then, then a higher working wage does not help me, whereas universal basic income does.
1: And what do you think the federal minimum wage should
2: be? Well, I think the federal minimum wage should be much higher than it is right, right now in the absence of universal basic income. But if you have a dividend of $1,000 a month, um, that's a functional increase uh, of $6 an hour, which at least pushes you into a zone where um, you know, like combined with various state regulations, then it would be above a point where people um, can survive. But I, um, So the, the goal right now is to move towards universal basic income in my mind. In the absence of that, I would. I think the, the minimum wage should be significantly higher.
1: And if your president, say, a Democratic Congress passes a $15 minimum wage bill, would you sign that into law?
2: Yeah, yeah, I would. I would enjoy that a great deal.
1: And what you're talking about really ties into labor rights. That's clearly a big concern of yours. Uh, we've seen a lot of Republican state legislatures, even the Supreme Court, dismantle labor rights and unions. What would you do to support labor rights and ensure that employees are able to fight for their fair treatment?
2: So the, the universal basic income, I hate to belabor this, but it was literally devised by a union leader who said that if workers were getting $1,000 a month, they could negotiate much, much harder with employers and it would be a built-in strike fund so that if you were management and you really mistreated your workers, you know they could go on strike and they could survive. Um, So it shifts the playing field in favor of unions in terms of their ability to negotiate. Um, And that would be the most powerful thing we could do is give unions a leg up by giving their people the economic clout and uh, freedom to be able to fight.
0: I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us.
1: And we want to give a very
0: special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show.
1: In 2016, the Canadian Liberal Party passed a basic income resolution that simultaneously called for massive cuts in welfare spending. And libertarian proponents of UBI like Charles Murray and Milton Friedman have posited it as a way to eliminate Medicaid, food stamps, and other social security programs. What I think is different about you is that you are not calling for
2: such cuts. So how would you go about supporting the social safety net? I just want everyone to take a step back for a second and think. I'm talking about the total eradication of poverty in this society. I I mean, that's what we're doing, you know. And 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 I don't want to touch existing social programs. So I'm talking about plowing more than a trillion dollars directly into the hands of every American citizen, starting at age 18. You know, so like it it would literally be the biggest thing we have ever done towards social, economic, like. equity in the history of the country. Um, and I don't want to touch existing social programs either, because I know millions of people rely upon them every day for their survival. Um, and so it is true that there are dark, nasty versions of universal basic income that are proposed by people that just, you know, detests all the existing social programs. That is not me at all. Like, I want to eradicate poverty. I want to make families stronger. I want to make children stronger. I want to make us mentally healthier. I want to get the boot off of our throat. And this is the only way to do it. This is the only way. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, I've looked at it. I understand the trends. I understand technology. I understand the economy. I understand the labor markets. This is the only way we're going to get economic power into people's hands for real it requires a political revolution. And it's a revolution that's going to come from us, or young, from young people. From young people saying, like, this stuff is... I say to young people all the time, if you're not angry or very sad, then you're not paying attention. And we need you to get angry on this one.
1: And something people are very angry about right now is healthcare. It's the top issue among Democratic voters, at least. Representative Pramila Jayapal introduced a Medicare for All bill. That aim to address all of the criticisms. You know, how is this actually being funded, and really outline details. She worked with unions, healthcare providers, activists to craft this bill. Do you believe that healthcare is a human right, and how should we achieve universal
2: healthcare? Healthcare should definitely be a right of citizenship in this country. Um, I'm for Medicare for all, and the way we get there is we have a robust public option that negotiates lower rates and prices on behalf of the American people uh, and we have ample resources to do it. We're spending 18% of our GDP right now on our healthcare. It's twice as much as, uh, as other societies. Anyone who's like, where are you going to get the money, where are you going to get the money is dumb. Just trust me on that because there's so much excess in the system. Like, there's, It's almost impossible for us to not save money. <laughs> it's, I mean, in a way, that's the only upside to the situation is that the the system the healthcare system is so out of control that we can improve access universalize it but yes healthcare is a um should be like a, a right for all american citizens
1: so i'm really glad to hear that response to how should we pay for it because it is the most you know the most common kind of establishment question and you know progressives are pretty quick to point out well how do we pay for war how do we pay for you know as you talked about earlier, how do we pay for Wall Street? We spend more on you know, the military than we do on our own domestic programs. What do you think is appropriate to cut in terms of spending? Where is there waste in the federal government?
2: Um, certainly, our military budget is excessive um, relative to the actual threats of today. Um, we're spending $750 billion a year that we know of uh, in the military. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories Jordan and it's going to make everyone uh, who's listening to this really like angry and infuriated. But um I have a friend uh who's who told me a story about his friend who's an Air Force pilot and at the end of every year he flies over the Pacific Ocean and just dumps fuel into the ocean. Now now why would he do such a thing? It's because they have a fuel budget for the year. Uh and if they don't use all the fuel, then they don't get the same budget for next year. So they somehow always use the fuel and the way they use the fuel, they dump it into the ocean. Um, that's the kind of messed up stuff that's happening uh, in like, uh, our giant bureaucracy um, to help justify the 750000000000 billion we're spending on the military. So I would try and move a significant proportion of that expenditure to things that we need, like infrastructure, more sustainable infrastructure that, that uh, replace and repair um, our current... Uh, bridges and roads and um, pipelines and water pipes. I was just in Ohio and the people there told me that um, it's not just Flint, that, you know, they have an elevated rate of cancer from the water there. And imagine just living someplace where you actually had to think twice every time you drank water. That's America right now. And that's America because our infrastructure is falling apart. So, I would take money from the military and move it towards things that would actually improve our lives right here.
1: And Taxation has been a really big topic recently. Bernie Sanders wants to restore the 77% tax on billionaires' estates. AOC wants to restore a 70% marginal tax rate of income over $10 million. Elizabeth Warren wants to implement an annual wealth tax. Polls have shown that these are overwhelmingly popular. But what are your thoughts on these taxation programs? And what does it mean for the wealthy to be paying their fair share in taxes?
2: Um, I I love the spirit of all of those proposals. And they're all going in the right direction. We clearly should have a much, much more progressive tax rate, much, much higher on estate taxes. Um, We've really lost control. But I want to point out uh, something that I think And this is my thinking on it. Like, there's a saying where it's like, if you need, if you want the money, you gotta go where the money is. Um, so I'm gonna use, as an example, because it's very telling, the richest man in our country, Jeff Bezos, worth $160 billion. So, what impact would it have on Jeff if we were to have a very, very high marginal tax rate? And the truth is, it would leave him almost entirely untouched. Because most of his wealth is an Amazon stock that has gone from being worth zero when he started it to $120 billion today. And there has been no taxable event. He's too smart to sell the stock and pay taxes. Does he take a billion dollars in income that he have to pay taxes on? No, he doesn't. Like, he, he, you know, like they, these people are very, very sophisticated. And so... If you're trying to even out the economy, which we should do, income taxes are like chasing after the horse after the horse already like left the barn, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like there's a lot of wealth in the society and it's already in people's hands. It's one reason why Elizabeth Warren's going after like a wealth tax. So my plan to fund the universal basic income is a value-added tax that would fall most heavily on people like Jeff Bezos and they can't escape it. They are so good at gaming income taxes, you would not believe it. They're so good at it that Amazon paid zero in federal taxes last year, despite record profits. So the way we get the money from Jeff and the gang is we have this value added tax that they and their businesses cannot escape. And that anytime they spend any money and benefit from our society, we get a cut. And the huge win there, Jordan, is that we also get a cut when they invent robot trucks. We get a cut when the artificial intelligence starts displacing call center workers. We get a cut with every Facebook ad, every Google search. That's the move we have to make. We have to go where the money is. I agree with everyone's progressive tax proposal. But if you look at the numbers, that stuff would not get to Jeff. And that's where we have to go. We have to go to where the money is.
1: How exactly does the value-added tax function?
2: So the way it works is that uh, anytime there's an Amazon transaction, we get a cut. And Amazon cannot game their way out of that. They do hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue, and we all get a cut of that. That's the way the value-added tax works.
1: And obviously, one of the presidents biggest responsibilities is appointments, whether they be cabinet appointments or judicial appointments. We've definitely seen these become more politicized under Barack Obama with Republicans blocking major judicial nominees to open up that responsibility to who they hoped would be a Republican president. They got their wish. How would you approach judicial and cabinet nominations?
2: I, I was so disgusted by what the Republicans did where they sandbagged Obama's last appointment to the uh, Supreme Court, Merrick Garland. He should 100% have been on the court. Um, and so I would reverse some of the damage that's been done over the last number of years. So certainly in terms of cabinet appointments, it's going to be uh, a cabinet that reflects America. So I've already committed to having uh, someone from the LGBTQ community at the highest levels of government. Uh, I I believe that certainly uh, organizations and companies and societies function much better with a very, very balanced uh, leadership team in terms of gender because my experience is that if you get too many men together without women, uh, that they become sort of morons. (laughs) I've never had the situation where it's a bunch of women and no men. Um, uh, so, uh, so it's going to be a very, very diverse cabinet, um, uh, because I believe that's very important. It just helps you function better, uh particularly in a public setting, uh, like a public office setting. And, uh, for the judiciary, uh, we need to reverse the damage that's been done. And I would consider everything because the Republicans were completely unprincipled in the way that they've gotten this judicial majority. So I would consider it Every means necessary to counterbalance what's happened on the Supreme Court.
1: And would that include nuking the filibuster and, uh, and packing the courts? I would
2: be open to everything, yes.
1: Most likely, uh, if you are elected, if any Democrat is elected, you'll be working with the Republican Senate. There's a
2: chance that won't happen, but... Yeah, the numbers indicate that's probably right. That's right.
1: How would you go about doing so? Republicans have not shown any inclination towards compromise. How would you handle that?
2: Well, it's a real issue, uh, and the Republican Party's deterioration is going to hold us back in in many fundamental ways. Um, The goal is to try and galvanize energy around things that we can agree on, like infrastructure. Republicans historically have been for it. It's something that Donald Trump should have been for. I mean, the the man's literally a real estate developer. The fact that we haven't invested in infrastructure is shocking to me. My flagship proposal of the freedom dividend of $1,000 per month is actually going to get bipartisan support because it's going to help people nationwide. And there's one state that has had a dividend for 37 years and it happens to be Alaska where everyone there gets an oil dividend of between one and $2,000 a year. So there are going to be many people in many parts of the country that will be very excited about getting a dividend. And we do not need a supermajority. We just need a congressional majority of 51% to make the dividend happen. So, that would be my focus uh, if I'm working with the Republican Senate is to find things that really ought to be achievable uh, regardless of their political affiliation.
1: And you alluded earlier to the looming threat of climate change We've seen such urgency from activists, millennial activists, younger activists, even children talking about supporting the Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal is interesting because it aims to take a comprehensive approach to climate change, not just addressing, you know, environmental regulations, but addressing indigenous sovereignty, uh, a green job guarantee, health care for all. What do you think about the Green New Deal?
2: Um, I love the Green New Deal in terms of its spirit and vision. Uh, It's very much what we need. Um, I think climate change is an existential threat to our way of life. It's yet another way we have shafted you all, the next generation. I used to think that uh, we were leaving a shambles for our grandkids, but it turns out it's us and our kids. Um, The four warmest years in history have been the last four years. Uh, and so we need to move aggressively in this direction. And I, I'm just so thrilled that, uh, the Green New Deal has hit national prominence the way it has.
1: And what are your thoughts on the Green Job Guarantee or the proposal of a job guarantee in general?
2: You know, I'm a huge fan of the spirit of it, uh, because finding people meaningful work, uh, has been really uh, at the heart of my career over the last decade. Um, I, I do think though that, uh, that Implementing a federal jobs guarantee um, is much, much easier in the abstract than in reality, and so let me give you an example. Let's say we were to go someplace and say, "Hey, guys, you know you you you're all want a job. great, like here's the jobs that we need you to do." And then some people um turns out they don't like that job, or some people don't get along with their boss. Some people decide that there's some other role that they that they would rather do that might not be available in that place. And these situations would play out over and over again over a very large body of employees. You're talking about like hundreds of thousands of people with individual situations. And let's say in this hypothetical, they're literally relying upon that job for other means of survival. Like if they don't have that job, then they, you know, don't have the money to eat. And so, in the abstract, a federal green jobs guarantee is very, very appealing. But in practice, it could lead to many very, very negative situations that are hard to resolve. And so, in my opinion, the starting point should be that we simply put $1,000 a month into people's hands so that there's never a threat that they're doing a job that they have no desire to do simply because they need to to survive. So, to me, the, the first big move is really this freedom dividend of universal basic income. And then if people have the freedom to do jobs that they actually want to do, then having uh, renewable and sustainable jobs being offered to them makes much, much more sense.
1: And looking at the intersection of economic justice and racial justice, in 2016, a UN panel declared that the US owes reparations to descendants of enslaved Africans for, quote, the legacy of colonial violence, enslavement, racial subordination and segregation, racial terrorism and racial inequality, University of Connecticut researcher Thomas Kramer estimated in a study published in Social Science Quarterly that the U.S. owes between 5.9 and 14.2 trillion in historical reparations, excluding the costs of post-Civil War thefts and lynchings, as well as more modernized manifestations of anti-Black racism. Do you support reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans?
2: Uh, I read Ta-Nehisi Coates. I agree with the case for reparation on a moral basis, and the numbers are truly staggering. Um, So I know that this country was built on the backs of slave labor and that we've never really made it right. Uh, So I'm a huge fan of reparations. When I speak to African-American groups, what I suggest to them, and I was just with the NAACP in Euclid, Ohio, this weekend. What I say to them was that Martin Luther King championed a guaranteed minimum income in the last year of his life before he was killed and that we need to continue his work in the form of a universal basic income for all Americans. And this has the byproduct of putting money directly in the hands of African Americans. Uh, And it does not make things right. It does not undo the legacy But it's certainly a a, a fantastic place to start. And I'm happy to say African-American communities are very excited about my candidacy for this reason, because approval for universal basic income is very, very high in those communities.
1: And earlier, you alluded to how immigrants are so often blamed for the economic problems our country faces. Progressives, liberals are quick to point out that that's false, that immigrants help the economy. But I'd like to frame this discussion in kind of the legal history of immigration. I'd like to go back to 1882, to the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I'm going that far back because um, the Chinese Exclusion Act criminalized undocumented status and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a quick passage from Supreme Court Justice David Josiah Brewer's uh, dissent in the Fong Yuting case, which is the Supreme Court case that validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, the quote is specifically in regards to the constitutionality of deportation. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, And second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Now, again, I bring this up because this is the foundation of our entire immigration system. This Supreme Court case was never overturned. What do you think about this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act and how it speaks to our modern day immigration system?
2: Wow, I mean, that's an incredible quote, bit of research. I can't believe that's still on the books. I mean, that is deeply messed up. Uh, uh, You know, I'm for a long term path to citizenship for people who are here undocumented, and I'm the son of immigrants. I naturally think immigrants are awesome, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because they're literally my parents and friends. Uh, And one thing, and this is not the norm, um, but my father generated 69 US patents over his career for GE and IBM. Uh, And so, I say all the time, like, look, immigrants make this country stronger and more dynamic and you don't need to be like a PhD in physics like my father was to contribute to this country I mean, just by coming here and working hard and, uh, you know, like uh, raising your kids in the right way. I mean, uh, everyone's contributing. So uh, I think that your reference to the the decision, the Chinese Exclusion Act is very much, uh, is very telling about the DNA of our country and our treatment of other peoples. Uh, and it's something that I would love to fundamentally alter. Uh, and, and to me, a lot of it, Jordan, is really this distinction between a mindset of scarcity and a mindset of abundance. And that in many ways defines the, this like conservative liberal um, uh, divergence, where if you think there's not enough to go around, then it's like build a wall, keep the immigrants out. And if you think there's plenty, then it's like oh, welcome them with open arms. And I'm very much in the abundance camp. And to me, the primary challenge is to combat the scarcity mindset with abundance for more Americans. And the reason why scarcity feels like it's winning right now is that 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. Um, So, if we want to get the boot off of people's throats, it will help people be more open to immigrants from other societies over time.
1: And what this really gets down to is the criminalization of migration. Most politicians treat that as an accepted fact, but it's a choice. Specifically targeting non-white people, What does it mean to stop criminalizing people of color and punishing them for movement across borders that is legal and accepted for white people?
2: I I mean, I I don't disagree with you there either. I mean, one of the things I've said is that if Puerto Ricans looked like Swedes, uh, they would have been made a state a long time ago. uh, That that there's definitely a divergent treatment based upon uh, different peoples over time. Though I will say it's been really interesting through our history where there were people from certain Euro- European countries that were treated uh, very, very poorly. Um, and then they sort of got normalized as uh, um, as, <laughs> as Caucasian over time. Um, uh, and the fondest aspiration we can have as a country is that we get there for people um, who are from all different societies. And that's a monumental challenge that we have ahead of us. Particularly as a country becomes more diverse. But we have no choice but to tackle it with all of our energies and hearts and spirits because the alternative is too terrible to think about. Uh, and I, keep in mind, I'm a parent. I've got two Asian American kids. I mean, uh, it's clear to me that we need to make big moves to keep this country strong and whole if people from different backgrounds are going to, uh, grow up in a place that we're all proud of.
1: Racism is a huge problem in the United States. It's really what drives so much of our politics. The two years of research after the 2016 election showed that the primary driving force behind Donald Trump's support was quote unquote racial resentment. You know, a lot of progressives are just going to say that that's racism. You would be leading a country that is deeply racially divided. You would be the first Asian-American president, I know that means a lot to our community, but you would simultaneously be facing so much racism. How would you go about trying to achieve racial justice in such a divided society?
2: Yeah, that, that is to me one of the great challenges of this era and certainly, uh, if I were to win the White House, uh, it would be a sign of real racial progress um, for many, many Americans. Um, And and to me, the challenge, Jordan, is trying to... Because I I was with a truck driver in Iowa two weeks ago. Um, And Iowa, keep in mind, is like 94, 95% white. So it's not like, you know, they're regularly interacting with people (laughs) from from different backgrounds. And and a a lot of this to me is uh, exposure. So one of the ideas I have, one of my proposals in my presidential platform uh, is that we should have an American exchange program so that your senior year of high school, before you start getting the freedom dividend, we send you to another part of the country uh, to live w- with another family. And you work in that community with 15 to 20 other seniors in high school from around the country. And that way, everyone would have had some exposure to people from a different walk of life and so then if I demonize that person, say like, oh, like inner city Chicagoans, um, you know, or black kids, and then the person will be like, I was actually in the American exchange program with like, you know, three black kids, and they were just like me, <laughs> more, more or less. Um, and, and so that would be an eye opener for millions of Americans. And we can 100% do it. No one's learning anything their senior spring anyway right now. Like you can, you tell me honestly that they wouldn't learn more from spending a month in another part of the country with fifteen other kids from other parts of the country. We can a hundred percent do that, and I'm going to make that happen as president. Does that solve the problem? No, but it's an example of a concrete step we can take that would open people's eyes, hearts, and minds. And we have to do that, and then we have to keep working at it. And that's what I'll do as president. I mean, I, certainly as the Asian American president. Uh, You know, I'll be going to other communities all the time to prove that I'm working on their behalf. And that, to me, is one way I can help bring people together.
1: Lots to dig into, but, you know, for the sake of time, we will wrap up. If folks are inspired by you, if they want to learn more about your campaign, where can they find you online and how can they get involved?
2: Well, thank you so much for that, Jordan. If you go to yang2020.com or just Google Andrew Yang, go to my website. And one thing I would love for you to do is just go to the policy page because I have 77 different policies laid out there. Sure, the big three are universal basic income, Medicare for all, redefining our economy so it operates on things like mental health and well-being as opposed to GDP. Those are the big three, but I've got 74 others, like having a psychologist in the White House and destigmatizing mental health issues, like uh banning robocalls because they're just a public nuisance at this point, uh like forgiving student loans. But please do go to the policy page and dig in, and you'll get a sense of my vision for the country. I'm very happy to say that I'm on track to make the Democratic primary debates in June, and we can take this vision of a human-centered economy that works for us, that works for young people, that works for marginalized people of every community, and make that real. Uh, and and one of the things I'm so grateful for Jordan really is that like I'm sure a lot of people listening This is the first time they've heard of me and to the extent they've heard of me It is there is like the Asian guy who wants to give everyone a thousand dollars a month universal basic income like I I, I I Beseech you to just dig into what this would actually mean this is a way we can reconstitute our society so that everyone has a path forward and do it for real not just the words but the resources and the wealth of our society in the hands of its people,
1: and quite quickly, what do you need to get into the first presidential debate?
2: Oh, yeah, sure, since you guys are probably political uh, junkies, you love this stuff. so the the, the way you get into the the DNC debates you are two paths. Path number one is you're polling at one percent nationally on the early states, uh, which I am. I'm at one percent in the Monmouth polls and. Uh, You need to have it in three polls. I'm sure I'll pull at that level or above um, in another two polls by May 15th. The second path, which is even more fun and direct, is to get 65,000 individual donors by May 15th. And I'm happy to say as I'm sitting here, um, we're on track to blow through that total. But if from this conversation, you think that I should be on a debate stage making this case, please do just give a dollar Uh, And then, when I'm on that debate stage, you'll know that you helped make it happen. And that's how you get on the Democratic primary debate stage.
1: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast today. I think you're a very unique candidate and we hope to catch up with you in the future to see how the campaign goes.
2: Yes, Jordan, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'll tell you, I'm looking at a bunch of numbers like this campaign is growing by leaps and bounds uh, and you're going to see a lot of us in the days ahead.
1: Awesome. And to our listeners, if you want to hear more from exciting candidates like Andrew, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.